Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third-tier markets to large 100-plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And today is an extraordinarily unique and awesome podcast. We did this one pretty differently, Connor, with a special guest and everything. But it is uh, – I want to give you a heads up. There are a few changes, and the format is extraordinarily unique. Why don't you tell them about it, Connor? Uh, Yeah, this is going to be an epic podcast, so uh, get ready. It's – just absolutely fantastic. We're actually recording this podcast live at our self-storage income event in Coeur d'Alene that we just had last week as of this recording. And it was totally freaking awesome. We decided to do this live podcast on stage in front of the crowd, which was just an incredible experience. And our guest on the podcast, as you guys probably could see from the title of this podcast, was Brandon Turner himself to come in, talk about how to become the architect of your real estate empire. How do you start working and building to scale? And uh, how do you accomplish these massive goals that you've set for yourself or even the small ones? Because you have to know what pieces you need, how to put them together. We dive into all these different aspects of exactly how to do that. It's just fantastic. Uh, But we do, given the format of this and this whole experience, there was a slight issue with the audio in the beginning of this recording. So you're actually going to notice the audio doesn't sound as good as it sounds right now. So we had had to kind of finagle things a little bit and pick just audio up. Just for the first up. part. Exactly. Just for the first, you know, like seven or eight minutes or so. And then it jumps into where the audio is actually being picked up from the mics uh, that we're, they're, we're holding. So we're also going to publish this on YouTube, I believe. We've got video of it, all that cool stuff. So you guys can kind of see what the conference looked like. We're going to be publishing tons of videos on this conference and everything yes. else. So if you haven't seen those videos, go check them out on YouTube. This was just such an amazing experience and really excited for you guys to dive into this. Yes, it was. So check it out, everybody. Let us know. Don't forget to give us reviews both on the podcast here, but also on YouTube. Jump over and we hope this one just knocks it out of the park for you. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income, and I'm excited to be here. We're live here up on stage. Dude, this is so epic to be doing like a live podcast with everybody here hanging out. Sweet event. Thanks, everybody, for coming here, hanging out. And we've got an okay guest on the podcast, I guess. You know? It's, yeah. It's, He's all we can afford. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so, Brandon, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've never done a podcast. Yeah, you're not used to this podcast. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you. You know, normally, it's just me and Connor sitting in a little room together, so this is a... Little more intimidating, but yeah, we'll try, we'll try to make that. So that's weird. weird. Yes, it is weird. We're really, really stuck when we do it. But on this podcast, we're going to talk about um, building, not just investing in commercial real estate in self storage facilities, but actually building 
a company and a system around what makes it so you can actually do this effectively, find deals, underwrite deals, close deals, and build a system. Brandon talked last night about the being the architect, right, of this whole process. And it, it, I love this subject because so often when we say investing, it's, it's really convoluted, right? And it, I think it's confusing because we say, oh, I, I invest in self-storage. And I think it's, oh, like stocks, like you just buy a stock, right? And so it doesn't really do it justice because mainstream retail investors associate investing in that action. I just purchase it and it just makes me money. The front end and the back end, right, is not included. And then people just like, well, why aren't deals coming to me? Right, so how do I get this investment like a stock? Do I talk to a stock broker? Do I talk to a real estate broker? Is it a good deal? Is it not? And there's just not a lot that goes into it. So like I always say, you know, self-storage and all commercial real estate is a business. It's not an investment. And you got to stop thinking of it like an investment. Because when you think of it like an investment, it changes the way you act. And you're no longer competitive and you're setting yourself up for failure. So I think that's going to kind of be the discussion today if you're okay with that. 100%. Yeah, when I look back, if I, if I could like give my 21-year-old self any advice, it's to stop reading so many real estate books and start reading business books. And like, like all I thought was the tactics, like how do I find a deal? And I read like a million real estate books and they're all great. But it wasn't until I was like in my late 20s, early 30s that I started reading actual business books like The E-Myth or uh, Work the System by Sam Carpenter or The Traction by Gina Wickman. And like that's what made the biggest impact because it changed my identity from when I'm a real estate investor to I am a businessman that invests in real estate. It's, those are two very different things, but shifting that identity has, has been like the thing. Like that's the thing that made me grow the last couple of years. Well, you, you can tell when operators and people that invest or own real estate, the approach at which they take and the performance is very tight. And there's certain asset classes where that's exaggerated, right? And I think, you know, when you're talking smaller ones, maybe that's um, single family homes, different, it, it, it doesn't really come through. The market works differently. But when you're talking commercial real estate, whether that's mobile home parks, whether that's storage or anything else, the difference is dramatic. And we see it in the revenue, both the top and bottom line. And the good operators, right, they approach it differently. They look at things differently. And their performance is not associated like buying a simple investment. It's about optimization. It's about cultivating opportunities, right? Creating opportunities, not being given an opportunity. And then everybody else kind of looks at it and says, I don't, I don't get it. Why do you get deals? How come you're having opportunity where I didn't see that, right? And uh, that's really the foundation of becoming, I believe, a successful, particularly commercial real estate investor. Do you feel like you're, I'm taking the questions now. Do you, I'm taking over the podcast. Hey everyone, this is the Bigger Pockets podcast. <laughs> My guest today, uh, do you feel like your foray or your, your decade or whatever long was in the insurance industry made you the way you are in terms of being a business owner versus that? Do you think that that's what made that or, or was it something else? A hundred percent. You know, we insurance because it's commission based, which I still even own a broker, uh, brokerage firm. It, it, it's all cash flow. 
It's the only thing that doesn't matter. We're talking sales optimization, running that cash flow. There's no hard assets. There's none, you know, that doesn't exist. It's the, the equity is only on performance. And we worked with companies, hundreds of companies all over, and we were working with the C-suites and we were seeing ones that were operating good businesses and bad, seeing that performance. So when we started looking at self-storage, it was almost strange to us because I'm like, I don't get it. Why aren't you doing these things, these basic things? I think that uh, gave us a pretty big edge. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, too, you're, you're talking about deal flow and building these processes, these systems to get in the way of opportunity. You know, AJ, you're always talking about being the bear, you know, going out into the river, letting fish jump into your mouth as opposed to going out and casting into a river. Uh, funny, you're such a fisherman. <laughs> I wonder why I like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, then it's, it's not only the deal flow aspect and, and getting in the way of opportunity, but it's the ability to effectively manage that opportunity once it comes to you. Do you have the foundations to build and to scale from once you have those opportunities that come your way? Yeah, that, that really comes down to and a lot of people, I think, get overwhelmed. And you talked about this last night, but they think, I'm not good at all these things, right? Like, okay, I may be able to find deals, but then it's like catching a tiger by the tail. I don't know what to do with it once I got it. So then what that means is they're finding deals, but they're never executing. Other people aren't good at finding deals, but they're really good at executing. So they're sitting around waiting for deals to come to them, wondering why people aren't just bringing them deals. And this, it's, a, it's a very different almost personality type that we, that we see, right? And a lot of people go, well, I'm not good at all these things. I'm not good at finding deals, right? I, I may not be able to, I may not know how to operate it. Um, I don't understand finance. And so then they freeze. They get into analysis paralysis. And, and I like to say, this is the point where, you know, motivational speakers are like, oh, you can do it, right? And you get all excited. And you're like, yes, I can do it. And then you're doing the numbers, you're finding the deals. And then that thing in the back of your brain says, no, you can't. And the great thing about that thing in the back of the brain is he's 100% right. You can't. And like, I, I don't think like we should, we should try to fool ourselves into thinking that we can do anything. And that really actually hurts you. You can't. It's okay. You got to embrace that. You're right. I can't do that. That should be the signal that your brain says you need to go out and find those resources. That's, that's a call to action. That shouldn't be to stop you. It's a reality check that is showing you problems and showing you where your weaknesses are and how to execute on it. But too often that just becomes analysis paralysis because we think we have to do it all. And that's not how it works. Well, I think it's really important too, too. It's not only about what you can and can't do. It's about what you should and shouldn't be doing. You know, going back to, you know, clearing out toilets, you know, our, our beautiful, wonderful story after dinner last night. Of, uh, <laughs> I can tell <laughs> <laughs> More detail this time. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, that's funny. All right. So question for you guys then. So if, if I don't know. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay. That's fine. So how do, okay. So for those people, like they understand this concept, Hey, I'm really good at this aspect and I'm not good at this aspect. I want to run this business. I can't do it all. I think logically we all understand that. Right. I can't afford to hire a big team. I can't just go and hire five people right now that are all doing the things that I want to do so I can sit and play golf. So how do you bridge that gap between I want to have a business and I have no money right now to build that business. I have to do everything myself. How do you build, bridge that? You know, it's, I love this question because so many of you have it. And I, I think we think that there's this magical time in which we just have all the money in the world, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's just like, oh, well, Bill Gates has all the money in the world so he can do whatever. That's not, you know, he doesn't, he, he's building 
tons and huge. He's leveraging capital and people, and it's not his own money, right? Investing is a team sport. Success doesn't happen on an island. You're not going to do it yourself, and you don't need to have endless capital, right? It's about incentivizing, creating partnerships, structures, deals, doing outreach, and finding good fits to make things work. So that idea that I don't have money to find a deal, I don't have money to hire people, I don't have money to do this. If that's going to stop you, you shouldn't be doing anything in business because that will never end, ever. It doesn't matter how big your business is. You always need to be finding capital. You always need to be recruiting the best minds. And it's a chicken and egg thing. I need these people, right, to get the chicken, right? But I don't get the egg. Which comes first? And you got to really marriage those two things. But you need to understand having capital is not the cure to your problems. That's not how it works. Yeah, people that? should hit the rewind button on their podcast app and listen to that last 30 <laughs> seconds again. Like that's so gold is yeah. Having the, the money it, it's irrelevant. I mean, uh, I wrote a book years ago. I don't know, like six years ago called like the book on investing in real estate with no and low money down. And I made this point in the first chapter. I'm like, this book is about creative finance, but this book is not for broke people. This book is for rich people. Like it's for, it's for everybody, but this is just as important, if not more important for wealthy people. They're the ones that like, that need to know these strategies because that's what you need to be able to scale and grow. So I think that it's a good, like, get that limiting belief out of your head that if I just had more money, I could be successful because you're always going to, you're never going to have enough money. No. So what do you do then instead? So what's the JV is an option. Yeah. I mean, there's multiple ways and I'm going to turn this question back on you because you're actually really good at this. Um, <laughs> but you know, JVs are an option, right? Joint ventures, partnering up, bringing people on, right? Um, my team plus my partners, us three, when, me, my dad, and my brother started this, right? My brother-in-law, who's not here because he will not get on stage and he doesn't like social settings, very opposite for me, right? And from my dad. And so he wanted to be crunching numbers, doing things, which was wonderful because I don't know if you know this, but I'm not good at details. So he's, <laughs> you know, he's really good at doing those things. And we were good at doing other things. But for the longest time in our business, right, me and my dad, we never even took an income and we were actually working other jobs because we were using that capital to hire other people. We would rather hire good qualified people than pay ourselves because we needed the people that couldn't do the things that we could do. I could work. I was fine. Both of us, we could go hunt jobs. We could find deals. We could do all those things that didn't bother us at all. But all the things that I couldn't do, we re-churned our capital, we hired them, or we went out and we find, found third parties, right? We leaned heavily on brokers when we started. We found the top guys and we just got tons of education from them. So we looked at free resources as well. And also people that are incentivized that when you do good, they do good. And that pay may come after. I think of third-party management companies, also people that are after the same goal. Maybe there's people who want internships. I mean, you have, how many interns do you have now? We, we rotate, man. We have like four, I think, right now, five right now. We've probably had 25, 30 in the past two years that we've just brought in for short periods of time for short things. And a number of them is, I mean, actually, I think every one, I think every single one of our team members, like at least in like the core team out in Hawaii, everyone but maybe Ryan were all 
somewhat of an intern at one point. My, my finance manager, he just asked if he could help do the books on my flips. And so he just did that for four months. And I was like, wow, this kid's really good. And so we ended up bringing on his finance manager. And Mike Williams was an intern. Yeah, Walker was an intern. Um, you know, Ryan was a partner. We did one specific deal together that we just partnered together on, and it worked out really well. Uh, yeah, another thing, I, I love to tell this story. Uh, when I was first venturing into the idea, remember the, to- the toilet example, right? Around that, around that age, uh, when I decided I needed to get out of being the DIY guy and doing everything myself, I was still broke. I had no money. All the money I had went into repairs on the properties. I wasn't working a job. Uh, and like, I mean, we just had no money at all. I mean, we even had to go on the envelope budget. Dave Ramsey's famous envelope budget. All money that came in went to an envelope and we spent it in all cash. And it was, we had to be really tight. And so I'm like, well, how am I supposed to afford like to bring on people to help me with this thing when I have no money? Well, I started thinking like, what do I hate doing? And I said it last night. The thing that feels heaviest in the world to me was, anybody remember? Phone calls. I hate them. I hate phone calls. But it, it, to some people, they love it. You know who loves talking on the phone? My mother-in-law. She loves it. And so she had actually retired right then. She was retired and she loves the phone calls. So I was like, hey, Rachel, would you want to just answer phone calls from all the tenants that are calling me all the time? Like, it's like one a day. Just answer the phone call and see if you can deal with whatever the problem is. You're probably just going to have to call or text me uh, or my wife. But can you do that? She's like, I would love to do that. I'm like, I'll even pay you like, what, a couple hundred bucks a month? Oh, my gosh. Yes, that would be great. And it was such like, that was just like extra money in retirement for my mother-in-law. We pay her a little more today. But like, she still, she, to this day, she still answers phones and deals with contractors and all the heavy things in Washington that I don't want to deal with. And the original cost was $200. But that $200 a month that I was able to carve out freed me up so much to do things that I then felt good about doing. I was lighter. I loved running the numbers on deals back then. I don't like it as much today, but I liked getting into the weeds and and playing with the numbers and talking to agents or going to look at properties. And so I got to do more of that because I wasn't bogged down with the annoying like, oh, you know, Miss Johnson and 506C or well, that's a weird number, but you know, whatever. She can't get her toilet working. Like I didn't have that problem. I didn't even know about those problems anymore. And so that freed up my mental energy. So again, the, the, the point I'm making is an employee does not, or a team member does not have to be a hundred, you know, hundred grand a year, 401k, you know, five weeks vacation or nothing. There's a broad spectrum between that. And so just take one thing you don't like doing and find somebody to do that. There are so many people who would love an extra $200 a month. Well, and, and two, I talk a lot about this. Yeah. I have my three rules to scale, right? It's either you got to automate, you got to get rid of, or you hire out. So hiring out is the third one, but in the process of starting out, it's the last one, right? So much of what we're doing when you start out, and this is something that goes through scale. This is a process that as you scale, that never changes, right? So we're always looking because we need to be more efficient to use the capital that we have effectively because there's never enough. So we're always looking at areas that we're going, okay, where can we take this process that has multiple touch points and automate it so we free up time, right? And also, where are all the things that we're doing that we just shouldn't be doing at all? Like how much of your day is spent doing things that has, does nothing to do to get you to your goal, right? You know, you guys probably know a lot about my, I talk about my impact corner. That's where I live and that's where I thrive and I got to really focus up. The, the thing about the impact corner is that's where you want to spend your time is you got to always be self-auditing yourself. And a huge portion of what we do is not allocated properly. So being able to do more doesn't mean 
always hiring out. It doesn't mean I need big expense. Most of the time it's just using your time effectively. Then it's figuring out processes that you can automate. And then from there, you start to look at partnerships, hiring out. But by the time you get to that hire, I mean, there's endless, we know endless amounts of people that have built companies basically off the back of them and maybe a couple other people. They're totally financial free. They're multimillionaires. It was just really them. They're really good at utilizing what little resources that they had. And for me, that was actually hard. I had to develop my process. That's why I created the impact corner because I get distracted and I start running around and I have to do my self audit. Where are you spending your time? What are you doing? So when you're starting out, this stuff is way more, way more important. Capital is actually, I feel like the more capital you get, the more you can misuse it and the more it gives you the cushion to not be good, right? It gives you the ability to overspend, overhire, do less, not prioritize. And that can be really, really bad. So you got it starting out and growing. It's about managing resources and not falling into that trap. I get that question a lot, actually, like on Instagram, people will message me and be like, hey, I just inherited $250,000 and I want to buy real estate. What should I do? I just got a million dollars. I just got 500,000. The first thing I always tell people, stick it in a savings account. Don't touch it. Like don't, don't go invest in real estate with that money. You've got a lot to learn before you do that. Cause it's, it gives you this false sense of confidence. Oh, I got cash. I can just go and buy, I can just go hire somebody. And then that you're not going to know how to hire the right person. Cause you're not hungry. You know, you're not, you're not yeah hungry. You're not uh, desperate enough to make sure it works perfectly. And like, I'm guilty of that when I have a lot of money, man, I just spend money. I just spent a $130 shirt at the gift shop here. Like I'm like, I got money right now, whatever. But if it I looks great, if, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Nate Robbins about the same one, but black. So make sure you comment uh, how good he looks. Uh, so yeah, we, we, when you have money, you're not as hungry. And so, uh, yeah, stick that money in a bank account, learn how to do it without the money. And then the money's really powerful. In fact, what I like to do is like, like I like, if I have extra money, you know, the best investment I think is not actually real estate or stocks or bonds or self-storage. The best it's dinosaurs. Investment. What? It's dinosaurs. Daxors? Dinosaurs. Oh, dinosaurs. <laughs> the, the best investment is bringing back the woolly mammoth. No, uh, do you know what's actually happening? They're going to bring back the woolly mammoth? Crazy. Uh, in the next like four years. It's nuts. Uh, no, uh, where was I? The best investment is people. So what I like to do is I like to... I like to invest with no one low money down using anything from syndication to partnerships to whatever. And then the money I have, I like to bring in people on my team. Then they're going to go out and do even more. And so I think that's a a pretty legit way to to invest money. But anyway, yeah, good point. Yeah, I like that. Um, On the architect, I want to talk about when. um, So there's multiple phases that we got to go through when you're starting out and when you're growing. And I think it's important to understand that the building that you're building, the future that you're building as an architect, you have to build it according to the resources that you have. And not everyone has the same resources. And that's okay. And that's why I have a a hard time with this idea that there's just a one, two, three, four, five, six step process to success or to real estate investing. Yeah, but it looks really good on Instagram. It looks really good on Instagram. That's right. Seven steps to success. (laughs) New book. Um, (laughs) And when you, the reason being is along those, those steps are all dependent upon your resources. And when we say resources, once again, we're not talking capital, your surroundings, who you know, 
your inherent skills, your advantages, right? And that changes those steps and those phases that you go through. And you need to plan accordingly. So when you're out trying to find your first deal, right, you have all these hurdles in place. If capital is one of them, then you need to go find someone's capital. It's a tight time frame, and I have to show that I have the funds, but I don't have the funds. We'll find a capital partner. Well, the bank won't give a guy like me money. Okay, we'll go find a a KP. Give uh, somebody that will sign on the debt equity. There's problems. Every problem that you have, there's solutions, and it's not money, and it's not even hiring somebody. Right. And you need to get if you're starting out, you need to get in the game. You need to get the experience because as you grow and as you're scaling, these resources start to shift the other way and it causes and then you have another management problem. So now all of a sudden you're getting deals. Now you have lots of people that want to come work for you. Right now you have lots of opportunities. Now you have to understand how to manage effectively. All right. It's it's of course, we all want the latter problem. We all say we want the latter problem. Right. But they're just two sides of the exact same coin. And realizing that makes you really efficient. And that's what will eventually build whatever you're trying to build. And that foundation will, will either last or it won't. Well, too, like you were saying, you're, you're never going to have all the money in the world to just do everything that you want and what you think you should be, what you should have. Um, you're never going to have a point in time where there's not going to be problems to solve. That's, that's what it is, you know, no matter what stage you're at in entrepreneurship, investing, any of it, you're, you are solving problems. That's what that is. I think, you know, along with that, I really focus on core understanding or principles and strategy. Like our, our businesses have changed so much, right? How we do business and I, and I'm learning all the time, right? I I mean, we just like restructured yeah. Our companies and, and how we do everything because what we were doing, you know, years before and the, the amount of facilities that we had and how we ran them, how we managed them, how we manage deal flow, all these things, um, how our vision for the future, all these things. I mean, this is just months ago, you know, yeah. I mean, we're talking maybe a year, yeah. um, it, massive, massive shift to be able to build the foundations or new foundations to, to then be able to scale and build out from there. And, and it, it gets uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. I don't know, it gets really uncomfortable. I didn't take outside capital and we needed to work with investors. So There's a whole world I don't know and understand. And, I, and um, I'm still even trying to figure this out as we grow and as we, well, that changed everything that we were doing. It's really nerve wracking because I know, and you got to know as you grow, those mistakes are coming. So the more you know that, the, it can make it a little nerve wracking because you know, okay, I know I'm going to screw this up. <laughs> it's just, this is inevitable, right? So you set parameters to try to try to guide you as you're building along those lines. So surrounding yourself with a good, effective team, mentors, that helps you guide and helps you overcome this. And they can show you things that you may not know or understand. That's why we're all here at this convention, right? We're trying to learn, we're making connections, right? And we're, we're figuring out how to apply our situations and try to cultivate opportunities. None of this changes ever. It doesn't change. But for us, our core foundation on how we determine value and understanding of the asset and how that generates revenue and what we need to do, right? The performance, things like that, that doesn't change at all. We have expectations, cash flows, what we're trying to get um, out of that, right? Those, those things stay firm 
and our core values, our core understanding, our core investment philosophy. It's the strategy around it that's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And this changes with market cycles as well. Sometimes one thing works and other markets it doesn't. And you got to be willing to change. Do you guys, are there like any control freaks in here that have to like manage everything? Show hands. Anybody? Nobody? Everybody's cool. <laughs> like, All right. that's, I, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome audience here. Um, I've heard that's a common issue where people are like, I've got to control things. I don't want to relinquish my control over X, Y, and Z. I've got to make sure that this is done this way and that way. And there's a lot to be said about, you know, having that vivid vision, that overall vision and the multiple paths to get there and to achieve that. Did you guys ever have any issues with giving up control over certain aspects of your businesses? And how'd you overcome that? Um, yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, I don't know. For me, I think it's, it, it's almost like my, I had, I had to overcome that by necessity. Um, and two, also, I think I, I learned pretty quickly. It, that's a pride issue. It was for me. It was a pride issue. Um, and I didn't even realize for me that it was a pride issue. And I felt that I was putting pressure on myself or even the members of my team. Like we have to do this all. It has to be about us. It has to be me. The buck stops with me. All that, right? And it, and it became uh, almost kind of like a little pride cycle within me. And in realizing that, I'm like, whoa, I, I got to kind of back off here. And I got to allow other people to apply their skills. And I got to recognize that they can change things maybe that I do, that I've made, change things that and, and test me and my theories and philosophies. And that doesn't hurt nor tear down what I'm doing, but build it. Yeah, I like that you brought up the pride thing, the ego. That's, that's a big piece. Whenever my team does anything that maybe I initially want to react to like, oh, let's not do it that way. I try to pause and ask myself the question, is it worse than I would do or is it just different than I would do? And 99% of the time, it's just different than I would do. But the initial reaction is if things are worse, it's different because we are the hero of our own story and therefore no one else could have an idea that's better. So if it's different, it must be therefore worse. That's the, the logic we tend to go through in our heads. And so when I ask that question, is it different or is it worse? And then I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's, just, you know, I guess, yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way, but actually I think that's fine. I guess that'll work. I don't really know that my way is better. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that allows me to then kind of look at it subjectively. Something that helps a lot. Um, also like the thing, you know, we, and I know you guys do this too, is we are very KPI focused. Yes. And so if somebody has a different way of doing something, I'm like, all right, you got your metric. Like, show me that it works. Like, show me that, like, if you think, you know, whatever, instead of sending an email or like, for example, we, we would do videos when we're raising a fund, we would send out a video that I record on a teleprompter. Uh, and I'm just like, Hey, I'm Brandon. And this is what the deal is. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my team said, hey, we think people are getting a little tired of the video. So uh, we want to just do a, a, a live basically thing. We'll just have two, three, four of us on a call. And we'll just kind of talk about the deal. I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not going to be as prepared and it's not a teleprompter. So I don't know. I might mess up. But then I thought, well, it's different or you know, whatever. OK, well, I guess let's try it and we'll look at the metrics. Do we have a good response? Uh, I think we opened up our fund two days ago and we already filled the like half of it already. It's like, like done. I'm like, OK, well. It worked. All right. It's like, again, having that KPI driven culture uh, and having people take ownership of their goals that they've set for themselves or we, that we've set together as a team, then I'm, I don't have to worry about it. So it's just like, let's test it out. Let's try it. Because at the end of the day, too, like 
real estate's a long game. So if you try something for a little while and some team member says, no, I really want to do it this way and it doesn't work. Okay. Well, you learned and that's going to benefit you the next 30 years of your life. Yeah. And when you're tracking KPIs and you're looking at overall results, understanding how those results correlate to your overall vision. And this is even day to day. You don't even need a property to look at this, but it's important that you're, when you work with others and when you're trying to attract people to work with you, you're very clear on your vision, but also that you give them a framework in which we set, right? I'm very, very big on frameworks. And like, I understand, I don't want to control every detail. I don't want to understand, but here's the framework in which we work. This is where we're trying to go. And along this graph or this plot, the KPIs are like little dots all along the way. And it shows us where we're being effective, where we're not, and how we're moving forward within the framework. Because you relinquishing control, we need to make sure this is very clear, doesn't mean you walk away, right? That it doesn't mean you know you need to help guide people. And I'm not talking about employees. I'm talking about people you work with. I'm talking about dealing with individual brokers. I'm talking about dealing with third-party management companies. You need to have a framework in which expectations and understanding is set and how this is going to look and, and move forward. And then you use KPIs within that framework to measure product or um, progress, to um, measure and handle expectations. And that makes everybody not only on the same page, but it gives you effective conversations and discussions. If things aren't working, it's not personal. It's not anything else. It's, we have these metrics and we're not meeting them. So what's going on? Why is this not happening? And it's something that we can all look at. And, and Ray, Ray Dalio talks a lot about feedback loops. And uh, the feedback loops for most of us are huge. We find problems. We don't solve those problems for a long time. And we get stuck. And you got to close those feedback loops quickly. And you can't close feedback loops to make progress unless you are measuring, right? It just doesn't work. And it frustrates people that you're with. And it frustrates people that may be on your team. It frustrates people like brokers because they go, I can't get a clear picture. I don't have clear expectations. And so the framework in which you're judging me on success is unknown. Nobody likes that. You don't like it. We don't like it. When you're working with others and when you're building a team, and especially when you hire people, set a framework, guided expectations, and then use the KPIs overlay it to actually measure that progress. Give a quick example of, of I think how this kind of fits within our, our culture at Open Door Capital. So, uh, one of our, our goals or our rocks is to do a certain number of offers, you know, LOIs submitted every quarter. So, for example, last quarter I think it was 75 offers, LOIs submitted in the quarter. And so we meet every single week. So first of all, that's the goal that the company set. And then the individual underwriter, his goal was to underwrite a certain number. So then the uh, so then Walker could submit those LO, a certain number of LOIs. So it's we got that whole thing built out very accurately. Now within that, the the team can kind of come up with their own way. How are they going to write the LOI? How are they going to improve the LOI? How are they going to find those leads? They can work within that. And I don't really get involved with that. I let them figure out what they're going to do. But what here's what's cool about the feedback loop is then every single Thursday morning, if I just happening here in, I don't know, half hour, uh, the team gets together and we look at, we have a graph. I mean, we have a lot of ways to do this, but we have a graph, for example, and on the graph is a straight line that goes from zero to 75. 
And on the bottom of the graph, of course, is every week going by over the course of the three months. So now we know the line where we should be to be on track for 75. And then we just plot how many LOIs do we submit this week and that, where does that put us? Are we above or below the line? So in other words, we get this immediate feedback loop every single week. Are we doing better than what we should be doing or worse than we should be doing? And so we can then reevaluate every single week. Are we above or below the line? And if it's like, oh, we're below the line. Okay, well, what are you guys going to do this week to try to get above the line or to get closer to the line and make up for lost time? And so that immediate feedback loop of every week, instead of going, oh, yeah, our goal for the year was 100 offers. And, oh, man, we only did 30. <laughs> Dang, that was a wasted year. Right now we know every single week if we're doing better or worse. So that's just one way that we operate kind of that inside. Well, and that creates meaningful discussions, mm-hmm. right? That creates not well, why isn't so-and-so working and what's their output? It's it's meaningful discussions on who's doing what and how it relates to the overall goal and progress. And when you're starting out, so we're not, let's say you're starting out and you're all by yourself, right? This still applies. What's your framework that you're working on as an individual? Okay, where, where are your expectations with you and how are you judging yourself? It comes back to this idea that there's going to be this little voice in your head that says you're not enough. You can't do it. Right. And a lot of people tell you, ignore that voice. No, don't ignore it. Embrace it because it's true. Right. You're never like these huge dreams that you want. You're not enough to build. You can't build them on your own. You don't need to be. So embrace it. Identify it. Put KPIs within your own life on a daily, weekly basis. Understand those KPIs. And when they're not being achieved, attribute that in a metric not in an emotional way. Deal with yourself how you would deal with other people, with respect and understanding and setting parameters, right? Too often we don't do that. Too often we say, oh, this is all because of me and I can't move forward and it's because I'm not good enough. That just doesn't make sense. So even if you're starting out by yourself, set your own frameworks, build your own personal KPIs. And then Brandon has his weekly things, right? And then audit it. And for a long time, I would audit, and I still do on a quarterly basis, but I audit my day. I audit everything I'm doing in 30-minute increments because what I found was I get so distracted and I start thinking in la-la lands that my own personal KPIs I may not be meeting. And then as soon as I started measuring and looking at how I spent my days, I could just identify and adjust. It kept myself on track for someone that doesn't like to keep on track. You know, when I when I was a solar solopreneur and trying to do it on my own, uh, let me ask this question. First of all, for those anybody here struggle with keeping those commitments with yourself, like you're going to analyze four deals this week and then you end up just not analyzing any. Anybody else have that problem? There's a lot of hands up in the room. I, I really struggle with that. I can keep a promise to somebody else all day long. Like if I tell Ryan that we're going to go, go diving, like I don't dive, but if I did, like I would show up and go diving. Like I just, I'm really good at keeping promises. If I said I, I was going to do a podcast with AJ, I would show up and do the podcast and you all would as well. I'm sure we're all pretty you know good people of our word. But when it comes to keeping my word to myself, I struggle. I really struggle with it. I mean, I, I have a hard time saying I'm going to submit five LOIs, which is why I built the team because now I can have them do it. And again, employees, they will generally do whatever you, I mean, you ask. If you have the right person, they will keep the commitment to you. So in other words, we're really good at keeping commitment to other people, not so much to ourselves. So because of that, I had to, because I know the self-auditing thing matters. And I know that if I can't keep myself accountable. I'm just, I'm not very good at it. So anyway, so a couple of things that I've done just to throw this out for any help that it might offer. Uh, like getting together with one or two or three other people on a weekly basis to say, hey, this is what I'm committing to. 
Just by doing that, I have now made a commitment to other people that I'm more likely to commit to. In fact, they did a study years ago, I think Dominican University did it, where they asked these people to, you know, like, I know there's a bunch of different, there's five different categories of people. Uh, everything from, I'm just going to do the thing, to I'm going to do the thing and write down the goal, to I'm going to do the thing, write down the goal, and then tell somebody to do the thing. Anyway, and at the very last one, the fifth group was, I'm going to, I'm going to write it down, I'm going to tell a small group of people, and then I'm going to meet with them to let them know if I did it or not. It was like accountability. And that group was like 90% chance of getting the thing done. And the first group that was just like, I'm going to do it was like 30%. So again, it's like three times higher just by having some people. So number one, get people around you. Like form a little mastermind group, grab two, three, four buddies here in this room and say, Hey, let's meet every other week for a 30 minute phone call, an hour phone call. And let's just make commitments to each other and say, this is what we're going to do. Cause you'd be more likely to, to do it. If you can afford to hire a performance coach, a good like business performance coach, they can also hold you to those metrics. Uh, again, whatever you got to do to hack your way in there. I'll give one more example of how I've done it. So I really want to do jujitsu. I thought that would be a you know cool dude thing to do. Uh, and so then for years I didn't do it because it was just me doing it. And I'm like, oh, you know, I got to go to the gym and go find some place to go wrestle with a sweaty man. And I'm like, I just never did it. Right. Until I hired Jerry. Jerry's a private instructor, a Brazilian jujitsu instructor. And he shows up at my house three times a week. Well, now Taro's house, but he shows up at our house. And then guess what? I, I do it every single time because he's there in my driveway and I have no choice. So find ways to obligate yourself, find ways to get other people to hold you accountable, find ways to, to make it so you are honest with yourself because if you're like me, I just, I can't rely on my own willpower to get it done. Yeah, hundred percent. I do the same thing. And when you're looking guys and especially this stuff gets exaggerated in different market cycles that we're talking about when, cause we're talking about creating efficiencies where an effectiveness and at market cycles, when you get to the top, you know, like we are now, everybody here, when we ask you who wants deals, everybody raise their hands, right? We need deal flow. We want deals, but then too, we don't just want any deals. We want good deals. So if there's, there's a catch, right? We can get deals all day long. It doesn't mean they're good deals. It doesn't mean they're deals that are right for you. And without measurable um, KPIs and without frameworks to judge, you don't know if you're getting opportunities. You don't know if any deals that come your way are good. But more importantly, you don't even know if the strategies to, uh, to get these deals work. And if you guys remember during Brian's presentation yesterday, he talked about the three different areas in which we find deals. The reason being is those became frameworks that we knew worked in different times and different cycles. And we'd have to apply those and we use them all at the same time. But sometimes some are more effective than others. But we have to measure that. We have to understand that. What is this broker? What are they bringing me? Out of how many deals that I see, how much of it meets my criteria? One out of 10. Okay. Does he not understand my criteria? Right? Why is this happening? Why am I underwriting and doing deals that I should never even be seeing? Or is it the fact that maybe he's not the right person for me? Maybe I need to find another broker. You need to look at this and measure that with other people and yourself to find and acquire these deals. How many uh, deals that you got under contract failed? Why did they fail? What point in the process did they fail? Like, where are those pain points? And then the next month, what have I done to overachieve them? The failure part's not the problem. It's the fact that you're not recording it and you're not identifying it. So when you look at 
building effective strategies, we're talking about frameworks and KPIs, but you have to be recording all of this stuff, right? It, you have to understand so you can go back to identify those failure points. And then from the failures, we identify KPIs, we put the parameters in place. And the more you do this, all of a sudden, deal flow seems like it comes so easily to so many people, right? They're just like, man, they get all the deals. It's because they built a strategy around it to effectively get deals. They weren't always good at that, right? They didn't always know. When, when we got started, I talked about our first big deal that um, we got. It was uh, $3.1 million. And I was shaking in my boots. It was really nerve wracking. And we were kind of like, okay, I think this all makes sense, right? We didn't know what we didn't know. We leaned heavily on other people. Um, and this large asset stabilized. It was an 8.5 cap with higher than usual expenses. Uh, made us very nervous, right? Uh, there's, we're not nervous about deals we do today because we can measure we have our strategy, and if it fits within this realm, we should be doing it. Well, that's because of all the stuff we didn't know, the deals that we did that didn't work off out, and we had to sell them because they weren't in the right markets. Well, why did, the, why did this deal perform, and then why didn't that deal? It, it just keeps going, right? So you need to start rec uh, recording. How many calls am I making? How, what, what did I say during those calls? Did that get me an off-market deal? Did it not? And then start changing and adjusting and setting up those KPIs within it. That reminds me of a phrase I say all the time. Uh, five words will change your life. If you remember these five words, success is never a surprise. Success is never a surprise. Like I'm not shocked that we have all these deals at Alberta Capital. I'm not shocked that you guys are good at self-storage. I'm not shocked that uh, Taro looks like a Greek god with a shirt off. I'm not shocked at any of that stuff. <laughs> is he even here for that joke? I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, shocked. I'm not shocked because like success is not a surprise. It's the, it's simply a result. So like it, for that matter, neither it's failure. Like you shouldn't be surprised at either one. You either did the work to get you what you wanted or you didn't do the work to get you what you wanted. And so uh, by doing exactly what you said and you, you lay that out, it's like we tend to want to use this must be nice uh, line, right? No, it must be nice to have a six pack. <laughs> Must be nice to have such a great marriage. Must be nice to have all that money and all those self-storage units. And like, it's, it's not nice. It's worked for it. It's not a surprise. And, you know, we look at outcomes. We're talking a lot about this. We, we look at outcomes, but we never get to analyze how the outcome was achieved. And this is something that you can actually work on finding out. So when you find somebody that had an outcome that you were trying to achieve going and asking them. And this happens at every level. We still do this. I still am talking to people and I want to know more on how they're achieving outcomes at a different level. Because every, every level we went up, we had to fundamentally change. And every time we had to fundamentally change, it was hard. It was scary. It was stressful, right? It's not nearly as hard as scary and stressful anymore just because we've changed so much. We understand this is part of the process and we have to go. But starting out, that can be really scary and stressful. Because you're seeing outcomes, you don't understand how they're delivered, so you don't know if you're moving in the right place. Go ask. Go ask. Talk to people. How did you find this deal? What did you do? And then overlay those things with what you have and see if they're working, right? The point that we're trying to make when you're building your you know, self-storage empire is that it, you have to be methodical about it, right? You have to be purposeful about it. 
And this starts with details. This starts with, it's not, we can talk about underwriting deals, but if you don't know how to get capital, if you don't know how to get deals, then why are you underwriting them? Right? You know, you've got to figure out all these pieces, fill in resources, other people to bring the whole picture together. And at first, I mean, the amount of deals that we find that we want to buy today shocks me because when we were looking a long time ago at big deals, when we started doing big deals, right, in 010, 010, 2010, when we started doing big deals, every deal was a good deal, right? All of them were. They were amazing deals. Yet we said no to the vast majority of all of them. We, we didn't understand. We didn't have a record yet. We didn't have... I mean, it had to fit within a very certain area for us to really even identify that outcome. Um, but over time, as that's prote- uh, perfected, right, it changes for you. But you got to be very conscious about it and move forward with it. Well, like you said, you you don't know what you don't know. And uh, that's, that's a huge threat to all of us, and which is why it's yet again so so awesome that so many of you guys are making the choice to be here today, to be here at this event, uh, to be surrounding yourself with with mentors. Um, the, I mean, the opportunity cost on trying to execute on things that you don't know, don't understand. I mean, like you're saying, AJ, you, you, there, there are so many unknowns when you're you're plugging in these different ideas and strategies that you think might work. And you have no experience in knowing what that outcome might be. And, and again, even today, we have some of those things where, you know, something sounds really good, but it actually doesn't pan out well. Um, and it's just going and talking to, you know, whether it's Brandon or it's talking to, you know, somebody that's whatever that pain point is, you know, raising money or, or you're structuring your company, however you're going to structure it. Um, it's super and super important to get those people on your team, uh, in your corner that can advise you and, and, and let you know, what's good and not good. Cause again, that, that no, not knowing what you don't know is, is such a yeah. huge threat. Well, and it's interesting because there's, there's two points, right. That, that can stop us. There's, there's, I always look, is it me, right. Or, or is, is it about me or is it about the goal? So when I'm looking and I'm not doing something right, it usually falls into two categories. It's either I'm not doing it because of something personal, right. I'm embarrassed. I'm worried. I'm scared. Right. It's, it's a pride issue. Or it's because it doesn't align with my goal. One of those is okay, right? One of those things is fine. The other one, though, is a big problem because I'm getting in my own way because I'm afraid of a broker maybe thinking bad about me because of all the things that I don't know, right? Or I'm worried about embarrassing myself or looking stupid, or I don't want to ask questions because I think, okay, the way that I overcame that you know, was really thinking, wait, is this for the goal? Then I, I need to take myself out. It's irrelevant. Just go and do. Let's figure out. They don't like me. That doesn't matter. This is about the goal. It's not about me. Now, I guess this is a little easier because I lost a lot. You know, I stopped caring a lot when they started bathing me in the hospital. They turned me on my side and rub rags over me. And I just kind of lied there, right, as people would be. After that point, I really stopped caring about <laughs> how I looked or felt because I laid naked in a bed for butts and people bathed me. Um, and I couldn't do anything for myself, right? Everybody had to do everything for me. Everything. There was nothing that I could do. I couldn't even breathe, right? And after that... I, um, maybe I became too open because then all of a sudden I'm like, I don't care if I'm stupid. I don't care if I fail. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm like, I've got a very short period of time, a very short window here. 
And that there's nothing about me that people don't know, my strengths, my weaknesses, everything. I'm, I'm focused on the goal. I just got to get over that and I got to overcome myself to focus on the outcome. And you think about the people around you and you think about your why, why you're trying to achieve those things. And it really changes you picking up the phone, calling brokers. It really changes you hiring that first employee that you say, oh, yeah, but they're not going to do this as good as I am. Right. It really changes you when you go to fund deals and it has to be all dependent on you. And I don't want to use other people's money because that's scary or I might let someone down. Right. That changes your entire outlook. You're looking at the goal. And if other people can be a part of that journey to achieve that goal and participate in that, that's even better. You may not take all the glory at the end, but that doesn't matter. It's about what you're achieving together as a team. And that's a real big struggle that people have no matter, I don't care how big you are. You can have a few hundred million in assets, you can have a few billion, or you could have zero or negative. That problem is always reoccurring. For sure. For sure. Well, we're running low on time and I want to make sure and open it up for just a few questions real quick from the audience since we've never done this before in in, in a live setting. So with that said, becoming the architect, scaling. Travis mind waiting. uh, (laughs) Uh, Any questions from the audience for you guys? Don't all speak at once. Yeah, man. Yeah, you guys are there, really so. scared of... There is coffee there in the go. back if Hold anybody on. needs to wake up. Hold on. Mike's coming. <laughs> Mike's coming. In the meantime, here's a joke. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Out of the 75 LOIs you're writing, um, how many would you say you get under contract and how many of those would you say you actually close on? Yeah, we get like 10 to 11% under contract. Very, very... Uh, steady, which is kind of, it was surprising me that, that that's the case, but we get about 10% of our uh, LOIs accepted, which is about seven-ish, seven to eight per quarter uh, when we're on that. We lowered it a little bit this quarter because we got we had such a massive Q2 that Q3 we lowered quite a bit and we'll probably bump it back up again in Q4. But yeah, we get about 10%. And so it, yeah, it's alar- it's alarmingly steady and regular. And so it's just like, we know we want more deals. We just turn up the heat a little bit and then we get more deals and then we turn it down. And so, yeah, it's about that. We close on almost everything we put under contract. I mean, it's or the same rare. one. Yeah, it's very rare. I mean, I think there was maybe one in the past year or two. I don't know, maybe Ryan, you know more than I do, but there's one or two that maybe have fallen through for reasons like uh, we had a kind of underwater or underground gas tank or something like that at one of them that environmental killed. But yeah, even actually, I think that one we even worked through it. I think we got them to do a big concession, but I don't remember. Anyway. We're, we're the same way and we're, we're that way for a reason. We, we like the brokers know yeah. and we tell them we go under contract, we're closing. Yep. So the only reason we don't is if you didn't tell us something. So if there's a problem that we don't know about that you haven't disclosed, that changes the parameters. Other than that, we close. What platform or platforms do you use to track these KPIs for your team? Yeah, we use, you know, so we have Asana, which attracts the, like, the actual goals, whether or not we've met them or not. But we used to use Google Sheets. We're, we're spreadsheet nerds. And so we have Google Sheets that has all the charts and graphs that show us where we're at and where the lines are at. So we keep it pretty simple there. And then we even, we have links to all of the Google Sheets within Asana. So that way they're easy to find anytime. There's probably a software that'll do that. We just figured it yeah, out. Yeah, we use Monday and Monday has the, they do the graph things. But Monday and Asana are basically the, the same thing. But yeah, we use Monday for all project management and all KPI tracking and, and where we're at and time frames and, and all that. So it's a good central system. 
Yeah, I wonder if you can do the, the spreadsheet thing inside of Asana. I don't know. Probably can. We just probably never figured it out yet. <laughs> it's the the far tab on the right. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so my question is that when you're trying to do, let's say, 100 deals, you're trying to build a Steam for syndication, who are the key people that you start to hire and how do you go up and build that team? Sorry, let me start. All right, I'll start it. All right, uh, so when I when I said that vision where I said I wanted a $50 million real estate business, I'm gonna you know, go ahead and do that. I actually made as part of my vision, I wrote up my org chart. I'm a big fan of creating your org chart uh, for what your company should be in order to do that. In fact, I was sitting at the bar last night talking with some gentleman and I asked him the question. I said, well, you know, what's your goal? And he said, uh, who was that by the way, 1,600 units? But okay, yeah, yeah, right? And I was like, wow. we were talking about like, okay, you want, you know, 1,600. Okay, so what team would you have to have to have that? And so we talked to, okay, we'd have to have an acquisitions person. You'd probably have to have some investor relations maybe or a finance person, maybe both, maybe it's combined or separate. Uh, you gotta have uh, some operations person to be able to manage the thing. And so you can really sit down and spec out your org chart. I mean, those are kind of the, the fundamentals right there. Those probably three or four. Uh, I would also argue you should think of yourself as a board member from day one and like I'm the board. So then you could put yourself in as the CEO, but make that a separate role, your board, there's a CEO, there's maybe a COO, there's all this team. And again, you, it, it's not about people, it's about roles. And so one person could do multiple roles. Uh, and then over time, you can start separating it. So yeah, anyway, so acquisitions person, uh, operations, finance, investor relations, somebody to manage it, an integrator, whatever you wanna call that person. And really with those five people, like you can, you can take down quite a bit of real estate. And what's cool is then the great thing about commercial real estate, of course, is that uh, depending on how you set it up, but if you're going to do a syndication, you know, you, you get acquisition fees when you do the syndication. So, I mean, when I, the number 50 million actually came from working backwards and how would I be able to uh, support financially five people full-time salaries? How can I make $500,000 a year for my team? Because I had that vision, right? I want to start with that vision of what my buddy had in, in Nashville. And so I was like, all right, well, in order to work backwards that, and if we're going to have a 2% acquisition fee, and I'm probably losing half my equity to, you know, partners. And okay, that's, that's roughly 50 million. So anyway, so the bottom line is like, that's another avenue of people are nervous to be able to, uh, I don't have the money to hire. Well, just remember the deal itself can pay for the team that'll get you there. And then it makes it really easy KPIs. My team knows if we can't hit 50 million, we can't pay the bills. So guess what our first metric was the first year, 50 million. And this year it was 86 million and next year it'll be, you know, something else. So anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. I think and too, when you're, when you're first starting out, the most important thing that you should look for is somebody else that is a, a very different than you. When, when we start, I remember, I'll never forget. I, I would had this idea like, what if we built this storage facility empire, right? We'd already had a few and I was, I was kind of nervous to talk to my partner and my dad about it because we were doing insurance. That's what we did. And he was the insurance guy, right? And so I was like, I got all this documents and this, this paperwork and I'd hired this guy to make all these spreadsheets and how it was going to play out, which by the way, it didn't play out like that at all. Um, and I went and proposed and was like, hey, you know, it was, we were sitting in his house. It was like a family thing. And I walked in the room and sat down. I was like, we, we should really kind of build this out. We should make this. And to my much relief, he was like excited, all on board, like, yeah, let's do this. This could be great. And then immediately was like, we need to get somebody else in here. And uh, um, he said, we, we need to talk to Sam, who's an accountant. 
And the reason he said that and the reason you need it is because he knew we're, we're two peas in a pod. If you know my dad, you know, you know me. We, we like to shake hands, talk to people. We, we're sales guys, right? And so it would have never worked if we didn't start bringing in people that were polar opposite to us. So if you're starting out, make sure you look at other people that have strengths where you don't um, because that's really going to define how far you can move. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, it, it's the EOS system where it's the visionary integrator, exactly, right? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that whole dynamic where they kind of break it into two different roles where you have the visionary, which is very much AJ. <laughs> uh, and uh, you, then you have your integrators who are the uh, more of, they're plugging all the pieces in. They're making, they're putting the puzzle pieces together and they're making sure that the picture is, is getting done correctly. And that, that just kind of reminds me of that. All right, we'll do one more question. Where there was a couple hands that we didn't get to over here. If not, we, we're good doing it. I just want to make sure. Okay. There we go. Could you guys describe your succession plan, seeing how you like to speed fly and you're learning how to do jujitsu? <laughs> good question. Like if I die, what happens? <laughs> well, the good thing is I don't run anything. So like I could get hit by a bus and we would just not tell anybody. And so nobody would know for years that I was dead. So Ryan would grow a beard. He's tall like me and not quite as handsome. And he would come up here and you guys would have no idea. It'd be great. Uh, other than that, I got a lot, we got a lot of insurance on me and uh, I need to get some more. I was talking to Tom about that, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, so we have that. But it really, it comes down to like, I don't do anything. I'm not in the engine. So the company could thrive by itself. What we are attempting to do right now is to more and more push the credibility of what I do onto the company open door capital and not the Brandon Turner, right? When, when I'm the brand and I'm the reason people invest, that's a problem. So one of the reasons we're selling our very first fund, our fund one right now, we're in the process of selling it is because we need the credibility that comes from that sale. There's look, we've gone full cycle. Like the company did it, not Brandon did it. The company did it. Walker did it. Brian did it. Ryan did it. Tristan did it. And, and, and so we need that. So that way, if I did die or something did happen to me, the company can just keep going uh, and they'll raise money just like I could raise money. Or the same way. We have there are three owners. All of us doesn't matter. One's there. We can make decisions. Not underneath that. We have a whole layer of executives within the company. All three of the owners, my partners, they can be gone. We're not. And the executives all themselves could run the business efficiently effectively um we're here and our executives are out running around running business all over the united states right now um and uh, then as far as insurance because we do um personally guarantee a lot of our loans when they first come up we just have key person insurance which are heavy heavy insurance policies that if one dies it goes straight to the business not any individuals right so the business gets this massive injection of funding just to make sure that there's no problem with the transition, even though there wouldn't be because we, we wouldn't need it. But it's more just to work with a bank on any one of those deals. So even if we needed to, we could just shore up a loan or anything if there's any problem. So we wanted to make sure that the legality and the financial side was taken care of. But other than that, yeah, I mean, me and my partners, if we, we all went, our business would still run and be great. All right. Give it up for AJ Very Connor. Cool. Hey, this is hard. <laughs> yeah. <he's> a, hey. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time. Great job, guys. Thank you very much. <laughs>